Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. That is located on page 497 and 498 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take that Blue Bible as a gift from Northridge Life Church. Once again, that's Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Thus says God's word. Let's pray over the word that we have heard and the word that we will hear. Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the way that you have promised us that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for this supreme of all truths that Paul said in his letter to Timothy is worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus died for sinners. We thank you for that because we are those sinners for whom Christ has died. And so, Lord, once again, as we did earlier, just let us gaze upon the beauty underlying the horror of the cross this morning, God. And so, Lord, open our eyes to see it afresh. Those of us who have been familiar with your glorious cross for years, for decades, Lord, open our eyes to see it again to see it again in all of its beauty, all of its radiant beauty, that we would cry out with the hymn writer, the wondrous cross. We thank you for this. God, I pray that you would help us to hear, because we can't hear without you. Our hearts are too dull. Our our ears are too stopped up with the things of this world. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak, because I can't do it without you, Lord. This is not my word, it's not my opinions, it's your word. And so, Lord, help me to treat it as such and not in any way pollute it with my own perspectives. And I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, if you've been here the last few weeks, Mark, in his gospel, has described for us the agony of Jesus, his agonized praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, followed 
by his betrayal by Judas, his arrest and his trial by the Jews, by Peter's denial of him and his trial before Pilate, the governor of the Romans, the the Roman governor, rather, of the Jews. And we're at the point in the story right now where there is no more appeal to be made. The Jews have presented Jesus to the Romans, and the highest earthly authority has pronounced Jesus guilty and has sentenced him to death. Now, something from our text last week that we didn't spend any time on, we didn't take time to consider, was the fact that before sending, before Pilate sent Jesus to the cross, he had Jesus scourged. And this was uh, consistent with the, uh, with the way capital punishment was carried out in the first century, um, in the time of Rome. And many condemned men from the severe beating they received before they even made their way to their place of crucifixion, did not even make it. They died because of the severity and the and the, the barbarity of this beating that they received. Well, the way it was worked, and if you've ever seen a movie like The Passion of the Christ, you've seen a pretty accurate historical description of how that worked. A victim would have his hands tied to a post in front of him while one or two soldiers alternated lashing him on the back with a whip that consisted of long leather thongs, long leather straps with bits of bone and bits of metal that were fastened to the end of them. So when they would strike the victim, flesh would literally be ripped off the back of the condemned man and it would expose the bone underneath. And because of the brutality of the assault, it was very common that internal organs were also damaged in this process. If criminals made it to the cross, they usually didn't last very long, and that was the point of this, that they wanted to pro, uh, to kind of hasten the death so they wouldn't be standing out there all day waiting for a man to die. And it was because of this extreme physical trauma, this extreme loss of blood, that this was such a, a, a uh, you know, barbaric and even deadly form of pre-punishment, if you want to call it that. And this is Jesus' condition as our text resumed, resumes this morning. He's already suffered this brutal beating. And additionally, it wasn't just that he'd just been beaten within an inch of his life, but he was sleep deprived. Remember, he'd spent the entire night before praying in the garden. He'd already been beaten and mocked and abused by the Jewish authorities. And now under a sentence of death, he's left to the cruel indignities of the Romans uh, and and this, this Roman guard that is determined only to make sport of him. And if we look at verse 16 again, it says, The soldiers led him away into the palace. That is, this isn't a castle like you see in a fairy tale or some English history thing. It says right here in the text, it's the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him with a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Now this whole battalion, when you read that, if you've ever seen, again, a a movie that depicted the life of Christ, 
You've probably seen this scene portrayed with maybe five, six soldiers around Jesus, uh, you know, uh, pouring out hostility on him. But the whole battalion was not a small contingent of military men, but rather it amounted to a force of 600 soldiers. And all of them were mocking Christ together. Can you imagine the weight of that being in the middle of a crowd of 600 people, all of whom are mocking you. What Christ was rightfully due, honor, adoration, allegiance, all of those things, it was only offered to him in this moment in mockery. The soldiers that were gazing upon him laughed at the thought that this humiliated and beaten man could legitimately be called a king. Yet, where were those men when angels prostrated themselves in worship before him at the moment of their creation? Where were those men when the Christ they now struck spoke with one word of his mouth and galaxies filled the night sky? Where were they when they themselves were knit together in their mother's womb by his command? Where were they when he commanded the rise and the fall of previous empires? Greece, Persia, Babylon. Oh, no, yes, don't forget even the kingdom of Israel. Was anyone... Beside him in that crowd of 600 worthy to be seated on a throne in a palace and adorned in purple. Now listen to me, purple may be well fit for earthly kings. But the Bible tells us that this king wraps himself in unapproachable light. The 24 elders of heaven discard their crowns at his feet as worthless before him. And yet they crown him on this day with dry and dusty thorns. All of creation at every moment sings his praises from the flowers of the field to the planets revolving in their courses. And would these men dare to strike his face, to rip out his beard, to curse him and cover his holy countenance with their spittle? Though these atrocities are rooted, make no doubt, in actual history. In other words, these things actually happened. We must not miss the deeply symbolic significance of this moment. If you'll recall the earliest portions of biblical history, the first man, Adam, was a king. He had been granted by his creator dominion over the whole earth to subdue it, and to reign over it as the viceroy, the singular viceroy of the triune God. But as you know, very quickly he rebelled and he plunged every one of his progeny into ruin. See, Adam was, as theologians like to say, our federal head, meaning that he was our representative. And therefore, when he fell in sin, we all fell. We were all victims by his influence of our own collective lust for independence. We didn't want to be ruled by God. We wanted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to make our own decisions. 
And this resulted in the birth of a hatred for God, a hatred for His righteousness, for His truth, and for His justice. Paul writes this very well in Romans. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, all women, because all sinned. But see, now in Christ, the Bible tells us in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that God has raised up a second Adam. And even though your faces don't say it right now, That's the best news you've heard all day. The best news that you heard all day is that you are not the prisoners of the decisions of the first Adam because God has raised up a second Adam. A renewed federal head to not only succeed where the first Adam failed, but it's so much more than that. He has come to bear the guilt of the sin which scarred us all, thereby destroying utterly the power of the curse. The first Adam was robed in blessing by his creator. You remember Genesis 1.28, and the God blessed them. And he said to them, multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that lives on the earth. What a blessing. And that was their garment. They were robed in blessing. But now as we look to the second Adam... You see, he's robed in scoffing and mockery and violence and disgrace and humiliation. See, his purple robe wasn't an homage, but it was a sneering joke. His crown wasn't a regal symbol of his authority And of all of creation's subservience to him, it was a bearing, that crown of thorns was a bearing of Adam's first curse. Thorns and briars. Remember Genesis 3.17 right after the fall? And Adam, and, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Pay attention to verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat it in the, uh, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But now, the twisted thorny form of all of Adam's curse is taken and it's placed upon the holy head of Christ. He's bearing the curse for you. These same men then offered mocking praise. The shout of allegiance that was reserved for Caesar was given to him in jest. Instead of, Hail Caesar! The battalion cried out, Hail the King of the Jews! This was not only meant to slander Christ, but his chosen people as well. Look at the king that this conquered nation produces. One that is beaten nearly to death. One who's rejected even by the leaders of his own people. The king of the Jews. But listen, listen carefully. Jesus had never, during either of his trials, had retreated from this claim. 
even before their own governor, telling Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And he even told the Jews that they would see him coming on clouds with power and great glory. Generations before, you'll recall, as they're, they're making this mistake of looking at this appearance and figuring out this man can't be a king because of the way he looks right now, you'll remember that generations before, God had appointed another king, the king that would be the, the type of this king, of, of Jesus. His name was David. And, and David, when the day that David was chosen by God, uh, he had all of his brothers came out first, and, and Samuel looked at him, and they were all tall and good-looking and muscular. But God told the prophet Samuel, who was to anoint the new king, he said, Do not look on his appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, when it comes to David... And way more importantly, when it comes to Jesus, never forget that God sees what man can't, for better or for worse. You may think you have everyone in the room fooled with secret sins and habits of darkness, but God sees them. He sees what man can't. And and on the flip side of that coin, there may be people that disregard you, think you'll never amount to anything, that you have nothing to offer the kingdom of God. But don't ever forget, to your encouragement, to your joy, that God sees what man can't. And God's plan succeeds always, every time, despite all the worst raging of man. The soldiers looked at Jesus, and they saw a weak, exhausted commoner, from a backwater hip town up north called Nazareth. But God and men like John the Baptist saw him as the final, the last Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world, who would be sacrificed just like the Passover lamb for all the sins of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And we saw last last week that their violence would open the doorway through which grace would enter the world. And it would conquer like nothing had ever conquered before. That's the power of grace. See, when grace enters, blind eyes are opened. Prisoners go free. The dead come to life when grace enters. Because grace triumphs over sin. Grace triumphs over the foolishness of this world. Grace even triumphs over the scheming of the devil. One of the other gospel writers tells us that they had placed a common reed in his hand as a false scepter of his supposed power and authority. Now, Mark tells us that they remove that scepter and they strike him on the head as a statement that they have now rejected any claim to royalty that he might think he was entitled to. And so we move on in the text, verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross having had their sport and got it out of their system, the guard removed the purple robe and they returned his more common, his more earthy, his more human garments. 
And they begin their long trek to the place where he would be publicly crucified. Now, Jesus, in his weakened state from the loss of blood and all the trauma, couldn't carry the crossbeam of his cross. And so they compelled, or it's a nice way of saying they forced, a passerby named Simon, who uh, was a faithful Jew, we imagine, who'd come in, uh, just like many people did from many nations, come in across the Mediterranean from the country of Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya, to celebrate Passover. That's probably why he was in town in the first place. But because of the soldiers, he would be the one to carry the cross for him. Now, that's a detail. It's a great detail in the story, but let's pause on it for just a second. Because this is an incredible representation of Jesus' requirement that his disciples must carry their crosses and follow him wherever he leads us. All of us are called not just to associate with Jesus' disciples by being a part of a church and as important as that is, but to fellowship in his sufferings and share with him in his death. And that looks a lot of different ways. And that's not my text today, so we're not going to cover that in detail, but that's the call. We're all called to that. Fellowship in his sufferings, sharing his death. And Simon, to me, represents this perfectly. Now, you may think that this is a stretch. This is just some random passerby. He just happened to be the guy whose name got picked. How could we know if Simon followed Jesus spiritually in faith or if he was just a random passerby? Well, you should remember that from Old Testament prophecy, as we looked at over and over, and New Testament revelation, which we've looked at over and over, thing, uh, over and over again, none of these things are random. Do we agree on that? So, there's an interesting element. I'm just going to throw this out there. There's an interesting element to all this. Mark is writing, if you'll remember way back to when we started, Mark is writing his gospel to believers under persecution in Rome. In his letter to the Romans... Paul greets a man in the last chapter, chapter 16, verse 13, I believe. He greets a man named Rufus, which was the name of one of Simon's sons. Furthermore, in the book of Acts, I think 19, Paul is with a man named Alexander, the other name of one of the other son of Simon. Could it possibly be that these are the same men? Now, the reason that is a compelling argument is because Rufus and Alexander, there is absolutely no reason to name them in this story unless the people receiving the gospel knew who these guys were. So if I said, you know, you know, you know uh, Gabe, he's, he's Manny's boy, you know, something like that, then, then, oh yeah, yeah, I know Manny, I know, I know Gabe, I know, I know who they are. And so that's, that's the, the, the argument for this. But beyond that, I mean, it's speculation. But is it so impossible to believe that these events have so impacted Simon that he believed and he led his family to faith? I like the argument. We can't know for sure, but it does definitely offer a plausible explanation for why Mark mentions these three people by name. Now, moving on. When Christ arrives at Golgotha, which is nicknamed the place of the skull, nobody really knows why it's called that. Some people believe that the place itself bore resemblance to a human skull. Um, others believe that it was because of its association with death. 
Um, and then on a more macabre note, some people believe that discarded bodies of the, the crucified uh, men there, that, that, that there would be piles and piles of bones and skulls and stuff. So we don't really know why. But, but he's, when he gets there, he's offered a mixture of wine and myrrh. Now, what's that all about? Well, what it is, it's a, it's a rare show of mercy on those who are crucifying other human beings. It constitutes a mild analgesic to kind of soften or lessen the pain that the, the man would soon experience. But Jesus does not accept it. Why do you think that is? I think it's because he was determined to drink the full cup of God's wrath against sin with no shortcuts allowed. And after this refusal, he is stripped naked. Most of you, for modesty's sake, have never seen a depiction of the cross like that. Jesus had no loincloth. He was stripped completely naked and nailed to the cross. Do you remember... What happened when the realization of Adam's sin came to him? What happened? He realized he was naked, didn't he? Never gave it a second thought before. And now he realizes naked. He tries to cover himself. He's confronted with the shameful reality of his naked nakedness. So again, Christ is here on the cross... And he's bearing the shame of that nakedness for all who would believe in him. It is customary in ancient times for executioners to receive the clothing of condemned criminals as part of their payment for their work. Clothing was expensive in those days. You may have one or two changes of clothes. That's it. You didn't go to, you know, stock your closet and decide to wear something once and then never wear it again like we do today. Clothing was expensive. People didn't have a surplus. So the soldiers divided his clothes and they gambled for the more expensive ones. The Bible tells us that Jesus had a robe that had no seams in it. And, and, and that was, they, they didn't want to tear that one up or divide it, so they just, they just gambled for it. But even this wasn't a random event, but it was prophesied hundreds of years earlier by David in Psalm 22, one of the magnificent messianic psalms. After this message, you should go home and read Psalm 22. But one of those verses says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Interesting. So from the third hour on, according to the Jewish manner of marking time, this means probably sometime between 9 a.m. and and noon, Jesus hung under the inscription that Pilate had put there, reading, The King of the Jews. Now, this was an insult to show Rome's contempt for suspected insurrectionists. But it was written, interestingly enough, John tells us, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. And that may not mean much to you, but pretty much everyone in the known world back then spoke, a very few of them spoke Hebrew, but everyone spoke either Latin or Greek. And so what is happening here? The three main languages of the world are, are written above Jesus, King of the Jews, at the time, so that everyone who read it, Jew or Gentile, far and near, could read it and they could fear But like other elements in the story we've considered, there could not have been more truth in that inscription. God had sent a king to Israel to sit on the throne of David, and yet they were instrumental in putting him to death. Jews and Gentiles could look on him and see that they had crucified 
the true king. Some would soon believe, and they would find life, while others would continue in their unbelief, and they would die in their sin. But none could claim innocence regarding his murder. He died for the world, while shown to be the king in every language of the world for which he died. Verse 27, and they, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now Mark tells us, as do the other writers, that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And that later these thieves joined in the shaming and the reviling of Jesus. What is the significance of this? I kind of touched on this last week, but do you understand that it wasn't just the crucifiers who were mocking Christ, it was the crucified who were mocking Christ. When I look at this, I ask, do you understand that when we consider the crucifixion of the Lord, there are no good guys. There's nobody. The Jews aren't the good guys. The Romans aren't the good guys. The disciples all scattered. And even those guilty, condemned men dying the same death turn their curses on him. There are no good guys. Can I tell you something really bold? You're not the good guy. You want to know something really humbling? I'm not the good guy. There are no good guys. Every person of every race, of every moral status can only stand before the holy Christ as the guilty party. Even though Luke graciously tells us that one of the thieves repented and he cried out to Jesus before his death, Mark's point is that all of us are desperately lost and in need of saving All of us are guilty of Christ's death. All of us have to call on him to be saved if we ever want to escape our condemned status. Those passing by the cross, probably those coming in and out of the city, similarly mocked him. Again, if you take time to read it, they're directly fulfilling David's prophecies in Psalm 22. They mocked him by repeating the false accusation made against him in Mark 14, 58, saying that he'd sworn to destroy the temple. And they, along with the priests, mocked him by calling him, Hey, Jesus, just come down from the cross. If you're everything you say you are, surely that doesn't present any problem. If you're the Son of God, does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody ever read those words somewhere else in a passage of Scripture? Hmm. See, they assumed that the cross was the sign, the symbol the actualization of his defeat instead of recognizing it as the symbol of his victory, as the culmination of all human history, and as the only hope that any of them or us have of salvation. They thought if he was the Messiah, surely he would reject the pain, surely he would reject the shame, and he'd just come down. But see, what 
I'm telling you, is that they were laying the same tempting shortcut before him that their father, the devil, had laid before Jesus three years prior in the desert. Jesus, this is so unnecessary. If you're the son of God, just come down. Just throw yourself from the temple. Just command these stones to be made bread. Just bow before me. If you're the son of God. But nope. This was the path to atonement for every one of us who would believe. Hebrews 9.22 tells us clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There was no other way. Note also at the very end, they falsely said that they would believe him if he came down from the cross. But is that true? Would they have repented of their wickedness if they had come down? How many evidence of, evidences of his power and his wisdom had they already seen and to which they only responded by further hardening their hearts? They would not believe in him because they only believed in their own power and their own narrow and twisted interpretations of what truth was. Now next week, make sure you're here next week, we're going to see the fullness and the beauty that lies hidden in the death of Christ. But for now, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe? Now, I, I would guess, I in scanning this room, know most of you very, very well, and I'm scanning the room, that if I say something so simple, do you believe, that there would be an immediate affirmation. Yes, of course we believe. But are there other things that we foolishly believe are necessary to believe God more? Maybe you don't believe, and you're, you're, if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit it, but what else do you need to foolishly believe is necessary when you have the written word of God, when you have the testimony of Christ's reign over 2,000 years of church history? What else do you need? Will any of us die the death of Pharisees and suffer the Pharisees' condemnation, saying, if I could only see this... If I could only see that, then, then, then I would believe. Or a second question, will you claim to believe? In an affirmation to my question, will you claim, yes, of course, Mark, you know me, I believe. And yet, will we despise his suffering and despise his cross when it comes our way, when we are picked out of the crowd to be the Simon, will we say, nope? I just want to be lost in the crowd. Will we strive only to ensure and increase our own comfort and our own worldly security? So my prayer, my plea for this message and for this morning and for the lives of of us all is may God open our eyes to the mystery and the beauty and the call that it's displayed in the cross of Christ. May we despise our own selfish tests that we place before God that he might verify himself. May we rejoice in the triumph of the second Adam who has reversed the curse. And may we take up our cross and follow him to where he goes, first to suffering if necessary, but then to eternal and unshakable glory. Would you stand with me?
Heavenly Father, thank you for this week when I've been able to marinate in the glory of your cross. Lord, will you just break through the hardness of my heart, the hardness of all of our hearts that we're so prone to, the habits of sin and the attitudes of ingratitude. And we draw us back to the beauty of that cross. Not daily, but moment by moment, God. When life seems punishingly hard, let us say, I will glory in the cross of Christ, wherein I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. God, when we are drawn away to worldly desires and lusts and concerns, may we say, I will not pursue what my Lord died for. And God, help us, help us not to grow cold to these truths, but to consider them often, to meditate them on, on them. And as I've already said, at least twice in this message, turn it to worship God. God, let us never be familiar, let us never be comfort, uh, or comfortable with the truth of your death, but let us be blown away by it day after day, year after year, until we stand before you and see what, our, what we only saw by faith before. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And to be able to um, just take this as a, as a uh, tangible Reminder, a, a reminder that we can hold in our hands, that we can see, that we can taste, and we can know that, that there was a sacrifice made for us, that, that when Christ said, this is my body that was given for you, that that means something. As we've contemplated the cross this morning, that, that, and we read through Isaiah 53, and it talks about him being wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. What greater encouragement could we have to worship? What joy should that bring us to the table with this morning? Amen? And so come joyfully. If you're not a believer, don't come. Wait. Let us please talk to you. We want to share this life changing gospel with you and know that if you decide not to do that today we're still praying for you we want your heart to be wide open to the truth of god's word to the truth of the saving jesus but to come without having given him as the song said your your life your soul your all to come would just be a mockery as much as what the soldiers did at his at his crucifixion but for the rest of you the rest of you that have said yes that is my jesus i'm going to follow him then we want to encourage you to come and receive the elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together.
Lord, we are so grateful for this opportunity we've had to remember your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shared for us. And we thank you that your blood represents a brand new covenant. As Jared this morning opened the service by speaking of God's covenant blood at at Mount Sinai, we thank you that we have a much better covenant, Lord. We have a much better Adam. We have a much better covenant. We have a much better Savior than ourselves and our keeping of the law. And we thank you for all of that. Thank you for the the bitterness of this wine that reminds us of the bitterness of your suffering. Thank you for the brokenness of this bread that reminds us of the cost that you paid to, to bring us to yourself. And we thank you that we will eat this bread and we will drink this cup and we will boldly and, and loudly proclaim your death until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you place your hands in receiving position, I want to read you from Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.